ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It doesn't really appear that we're going to see a dramatic change here uh, that's going to you know, solve the housing crisis. But quite frankly, politically, was that possible? Probably not. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And it's been another busy week in politics. We're going to be joined this morning by Anna Henderson, who's the Chief Political Correspondent with SBS World News, to break some of that down. But first, PK, the fairy tale is over. The Matildas played hard. They just couldn't match England's aggression and their smart play. I think it's fair to say they outplayed us, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they won the game, sure. Um, I don't mean to sound like a sore loser, but they were really, really aggressive. They were rough and tough and dirty. But whatever, they clearly were the stronger team on the night. But let's just like zoom out. One game, yes, we lost. That one goal by Sam Kerr was just like mastery. Yeah, she just demonstrated why she's so well-loved, right? Like she's just such an amazing striker. I don't know what it was like in your house, but in where I was watching it with a group of people, everyone was on their feet cheering. It was, I was just with, magnificent. I was with my 14-year-old and we lost it, yeah. <laughs> I started randomly doing things and she was like, Mum, you've <laughs> lost your mind. I said, she's a god. She's like, she is, Mum. She's calmed down. Um, the Matildas have done something quite extraordinary in this country where they have won. Um, the numbers are just out. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. They've won the ratings for 2023 full stop. So, you know, that's it, the highest watched thing this year. Also, I think they've given us a moment which is like no other. And I reckon it's really important to honour the many women. And I know some of these women. I know women in their 40s who are like ex-Matildas. Yeah. Right? Who are like, wow, no one used to come and see us. They built this. They built this legacy. So, you know, the little girls and little boys who turn up now and were crying because last night, you know, their team didn't make it, but that the fact that their team could be in this semi-final and women could be on this stage and that it's so normal to aspire to this now. It is incredible and the legacy, I think, will go on. Um, yeah. It's been a game changer. It has been a game changer, but, but in a way, the fact that the Matildas are at the level they are means the game has already changed. Having this World Cup on home soil, of course, just rams that home. Even the Sydney Olympics, I don't know, I've never quite felt the nation so kind of uplifted by by an, an event and a team and a group of people. And the the, the thing that I love about these players, apart from their prowess, it, it's drilled into this team from because they've come through that. They've come through all the games where there's only a couple of hundred people in the in the stands, if that. Um, they've come through not having changed rooms. They've come through ha- having selling chocolate bars to try and you know pay their way to be able to go to a carnival in interstate. That it's ingrained in them that they are doing this for the next generation. So that's what they wanted to do, apart from winning. No, that's right. And look, you know, this is just a testament to the fact that there's so much fantastic 
you know, sport being played by everyone in this country, but also by women. And for those of us who spend our weekends watching little girls or big girls like I do, like my entire weekend is women's sport, it's not some fringe thing anymore. <laughs> anyway, it's it's the world's game. It's a brilliant game. Okay. We drag ourselves okay. from football now. Back to politics. PK Housing remains in the spotlight. It's a political football still, though. Oh, boom, boom. And it's a, a fairy tale not come true yet because National Cabinet did end yesterday with more money and more promises on housing supply and projections for renters. But the stakes are high on this Commonwealth State housing plan, not least of all for all those Australians who just can't find a house. They can't find accommodation. They can't afford housing or they can't find it. The shortages are acute. The rents are sky high. And PK, I'm not sure that the plan that National Cabinet signed off on yesterday is going to do much in the short term to alleviate either of those pressures. This is very hard stuff for governments to actually get things done, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair critique. But, you know, we need to have some nuance here as well. The Greens have come in very hard criticising what was announced by the National Cabinet. But I do think there's some good in this. The major announcement from the meeting was this additional $3 billion from the Commonwealth to incentivise more supply from the states and territories. Now, it's not clear exactly, to be fair, how that will be split between them, but it will be performance-based and that that will basically create an extra 200,000 homes, increasing that national commitment, which was already $1 million to $1.2. So that's that's significant. There's also this additional $500 million for essential services such as basic amenities in new housing projects to provoke states and territories and local governments to speed up the process. So there's this element, which I do think is a down payment, but I call it that because there has to be other elements. And I do think they they went a bit missing on some of the other things. After stumping up the money for all this, the Prime Minister was claiming it as a win. Here he is. The new home bonus for states and territories that achieve more than their share of the one million well-located home target under the National Housing Accord. This will incentivise states and territories to undertake the reforms which are necessary to boost housing supply and increase housing affordability. But when it came to renters' rights, as expected, the agreements fell short of demand. So they went for once-a-year increases. Look, to be fair, states and territories are already going that direction and there's no limit on that one once a year increase for rents, so it could be quite high. And no fault, basically, evictions as well. Something they're going to look at short-term rentals, but no real detail on what. But Fran, did it fall short? Uh, I think it did, PK. It fell short on the critical measure that this deal signed by the states and territories and the federal government is not going to make renting more affordable anytime soon. And that's a problem. I mean, over the long term, yes, supply, as everyone says, is the answer. And this is all about trying to bring supply on quickly. Um, but supply can't really come on quick, quickly because you've got to build the homes, you've got to find the land, you've got to get the, the changes to planning the laws planning and laws and all of that. And so that can't happen quickly. Meantime, you know, what's in this. There are no caps, as you say. There are no rent freezes. The Greens say there's basically a big fat nothing much for renters here. Today the Labor Party just spat in the face of the nearly 8 million people in this country who rent and offered them basically nothing. 
That's Greens housing spokesperson Max Chandler-Mather, who's really been taking it up to the government here. I have to say, PK, I think the Greens are on a winner here politically. I mean, just, you know, when you look, you see on the news the lines of people outside rental open days in the capital cities. Decent properties are hard to find and they're even harder to afford. Uh, This problem is acute. And uh, as I say, I don't think this does anything to alleviate that in the short term. I I often like to mention the Anglicare Rental Affordability Study that comes out regularly regularly here on the party room. Um, Their latest snapshot is even more dire. It came out this week and for the first time, rental affordability has crashed to 1% for a single person working full-time on the minimum wage. And check out this statistic. The survey found that 507 rental properties across Australia, only 507, were affordable for an aged care full-time worker. I mean, that makes it really, really tough. Really tough. Look, this is a political podcast, Fran. We always talk about the politics, not just the policy. And there is going to be a royal fight on this issue over the coming months and and into the next election. I don't think that's been put away at all just because there's been a national cabinet plan announced. I suspect this will continue. And uh, I don't think Labor has dealt with all of the complaints around rents. I think we're going to dig into that a bit more with Anna um, when we bring her in. And well, should we do it now? Yeah, let's do it. Anna Henderson, SBS World News Chief Political Correspondent and Friend of the Party Room. Welcome to this meaty political chat. Hello. I've got my Matilda's Margarita here to celebrate their great success despite uh, the most recent game. Yes, that's a great loss, but we've been drowning our sorrows too. So welcome aboard again, Anna. Great to have you. And PK and I have just been discussing, apart from the Matildas, the outcome of yesterday's National Cabinet meeting. It's been a long time coming. There's support from community housing organisations for the measures that were agreed, but will the outcome of this meeting actually change much for people in the short term? Well, I think the short answer is no. There was already a pipeline of of housing uh, with incentivised building programs underway, and now we have an extra 200,000 homes in the five-year period starting next year. So in the long term, more houses expected to be built, but in the short term, it doesn't really appear that we're going to see a dramatic change here uh, that's going to solve the housing crisis. But quite frankly, politically, was that possible? Probably not. Uh, And from the Greens' point of view, they're obviously furious uh, in terms of their rhetoric yesterday. But I think the point that the Prime Minister and the Premiers and Chief Ministers have been making is that, particularly on the rental front, it is hard for every jurisdiction to change legislation in concert. it's, It's not really possible to do that. So the, the measures that they did take on the rental side in terms of saying we do need to try and limit our move towards one rent increase per year as a limit does seem like something that's in the art of the possible, not what the Greens have been calling for, obviously, but something that can be achieved. Now, it will help the federal government, though, I think, shift the dial, uh, perhaps, on their signature housing bill. I spoke to the Greens leader, Adam Bant, Thursday morning. He didn't seem so keen, but he did say they'd revisit it. Here he is. But what is clear is that Labor is leaving renters behind and we're going to keep fighting for them. Okay. Just again on this legislation, you will revisit your position? Well... My colleagues and I will have discussions when Parliament resumes. It's due to come back in October. And you think um, it's worth considering supporting have it? Some, have some work to do. Well, there's nothing for renters in this package, which is incredibly disappointing. 
Okay, so that was Adam Bant. Anna, there is a split in the Greens about whether they waive this through or not, right? There is. And also there is a potential that the Greens could come back and perhaps decide to campaign on, okay, we will support uh, the Housing Australia Future Fund and we managed to secure an additional $5 billion. Look at what we did by Mm. putting the government under pressure. So in terms of the way that they sell that to their voting base and the base they're trying to build in the lead up to the next election, that could be quite promising and um, ensure that they don't get seen and uh, painted as wreckers in this process. But we do know that the Greens have printed up a lot of their campaign material already. They're handing them out at rental queues. So the political decision that they have to make uh, in the coming months is going to be a really challenging one. Whether or not they make the right one for the next election is, I think, what they're trying to wrangle with at the moment. And leaving the door well and truly open in your interview, PK. You know, even if you don't agree that they should cap rents there are other things you can do like there was a even on short term short stay accommodations for instance they're looking at it there's a lot of motherhood sort of stuff there was no yeah. actual plan so that alone you know if you want to deal with that i mean we know there's other really innovative ideas about office buildings which are just sitting you know unused and dormant actually yes. turbocharging plans like that about trying to use those sorts of spaces. Like there are lots of things they can do in the shorter term that they didn't do. So there are other things that can go beyond just the Greens' demand for freezing rents or capping them for two years. They didn't do all of that. Some of that they've kicked the can down the road, um, even sort of the evictions and the standards for rent for rental properties. I think they could have fleshed out some more of that personally, mm. but it doesn't only have to be caps. There are other renter rights issues that are also important, I think. Yeah. And I do want to point out just in terms of moving towards the limit of one rent increase a year, that's not, that's not locked in. There's no timeline. I'm told it will be within a matter of months that each of the jurisdictions will be able to make this a reality. But that is something they'll have to take back to their parliaments. So it isn't locked in. And I want to move now to another topic, the National Press Club address by former Greens, now independent Senator Lydia Thorpe. Indigenous Centre in our Parliament. We knew she was going to vote no on the voices because she's part of what's called the progressive no vote. But now she's calling for the whole thing, the whole referendum to be scrapped, calling it window dressing and fake progress. This is why we should call off the referendum. It has caused nothing but harm and division. And for what? There won't be change until this society changes, until this society's thinking values, attitudes and systems have been revolutionised in order to ensure real self-determination. So a hard-line position there from Lydia Thorpe. Anna, you were in the box seat yesterday at the press club introducing her. Did mm. she go further in her opposition to know then than she has before and than we're expecting? We've heard this position before, but certainly this was the most fulsome expression of just all the reasons why Lydia Thorpe uh, feels that the voice isn't delivering and that the Australian government over time hasn't delivered, particularly in relation to two key reports, the um, Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission and the Bringing Them Home report. So she's very driven by her concern around the recommendations from those two reports that haven't been delivered upon, as well as her concern about things like how native title has progressed uh, in this country. The point that she makes is that Australia should move directly to a treaty process and she wants King Charles 
trials at the table for that. But there is a real difficulty wrangling with these ideas when Lydia Thorpe is calling for a move directly to treaty and then those in the Yes campaign continue to ask, well, who is going to represent uh, the First Nations community in Australia in a treaty process? Because that's exactly why the voice was being uh, arranged why this whole process was being put forward as the answer so that you could move forward potentially with those other elements once there was a group that were elected or appointed by local communities to step forward and take part in that. Lydia Thorpe doesn't agree that that's the right approach. Uh, it was an incendiary speech in some ways, but at the same time as asking for the referendum to be called off, Lydia Thorpe was also saying that she could still be convinced to support the Yes campaign if those recommendations from those reports were implemented mm. and that she's got a line to the Prime Minister on that. So uh, there was certainly what appeared to be some deep contradictions in yeah. the press club address yesterday. Yeah. And also that if there was a no vote delivered, it would show that Australia's racist. The country is racist if we vote no, and the country is racist, she said as well, if it's a yes vote because it continues the colonial um, approach to Indigenous affairs. Clearly, at the same time, her words are being listened to by the government and the Prime Minister, when this was put to him yesterday in a press conference, the discussion around Lydia Thorpe making these calls, he was very, very conciliatory in his tone. Mm. Uh, he said he had respect for everyone in the debate. It appears that there is an important line open there to try and have a conversation and that the government thinks that there is potential to still engage with Lydia Thorpe on her position and a keenness to see as many people as possible who are Indigenous representatives in the parliament brought on side to the Yes campaign as much as that could be seen by many as very hard to fathom given the whole black sovereign movement that Lydia Thorpe now represents as an independent is anathema uh, to a voice to parliament. Look, there's another issue that's emerged this week. The federal government has revealed its five-year plan to end gender-based violence. It aims to reduce the number of women killed in intimate partner homicides by 25% a year. And for the first time, there is actually a dedicated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander plan too, which Indigenous women have been calling for, can I say? Like they've always said that they need their own plans, so that's been delivered. Indigenous women, we know, based on the numbers, are six times more likely to be victims of homicide due to domestic violence than non-Aboriginal women. Anna, you worked extensively as a reporter in Alice Springs and, and uh, you know, you, you across these issues very much. How important is it to have a dedicated First Nations plan and also to just put a reduction target on gender-based violence? Anything to address this area, spotlight it, fund it, put a framework around it and engage locally on these issues is obviously huge. And the amount of time and effort that's being spent on this now from the Minister, Amanda Rishworth, and more generally, is twofold because not only is it saying to all the groups that already work in these spaces that the government sees the work that they do and wants to support it and wants to set itself as a government a measure for whether it's succeeding in that assistance, but also it does speak to this broader issue of while we do have this referendum debate going on and it's seen by a number of Indigenous leaders as really an important issue that in the broader community, the government is still working on trying to address in real time, close the gap issues and broader um, domestic violence issues, which are part of 
the opposition's uh, criticism of the government, that it's too focused on something in the future in terms of constitutional change and not change on the ground that is actually going to, you know, have an impact on the lives of people who are experiencing this. Also leads back to the idea of the voice, doesn't it? That if you get people on the ground in the communities who are affected by it, um, actually having input into policy development. I mean, this is exactly one of the sort of intractable problems that yeah. the, those who support the voice say could make a change finally. Mm-hmm. That broader conversation is happening at the same time as as these announcements. And sometimes they're getting quite lost in this broader yeah. debate as well. So they I'm are. glad we're, we're talking about them. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Look, Anna, just finally, the Australian Labor Party conference kicked off on Thursday morning in Brisbane. First time in five years they've met. It's always a torrid time. There's always theatrics, the left and the right and the deals. I remember when Anthony Albanese was a young lefty, he was the sort of master of the conference floor for the left. Now he's Prime Minister, hoping that everyone probably behaves. He's giving an opening address. How much is at stake for him? Well, this is really significant for the Prime Minister. Sometimes the national conference platform is sort of described in terms of, oh, you know, it's there in the background. It's not binding on the federal party and it, it doesn't really have as much weight uh, as as people might put upon it. But it, it really does because it's the, the foundation that underpins what Labor stands for, even though they're not forced to implement everything that's in it. My understanding is that the left does have the numbers on the floor, which I'm sure he's very relieved about. We've already seen the government trying to head off some of the more difficult conversations conversations around, for example, Israeli settlements in the West Bank. There's still tax policy issues to discuss. And I am told that we should be watching quite closely what happens on climate. So it'll be tricky for Anthony Albanese. And I think it'll be a test of his ability to create that delicate balance to give people a voice without that voice embarrassing him. If there is a position in the platform that's different to the government's position, it can really cloud their message when they're advancing a policy. Yes, it's so, certainly weaponised against them by the opposition. Absolutely. So that's that's my, my, I guess, view on it at this point after many years of covering this. No, it's not binding. They're not forced to take it on. But it does have an impact and it can really blunt arguments if the, the political party in, in Canberra is taking a different position to the national platform and they're at odds. That's my point of view at this point. Okay. At this point, at the very beginning <laughs> we'll see what happens. Of, of a rowdy weekend. Now, Anna, thank exactly. you for your calm and considered views. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Anna. See you. We'll move to questions without notice. we give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time. And this question comes from Sean. Hey, Fran and PK. Sean from Canberra here. Love the podcast. My question is about, at the last federal election, ABC's Vote Compass listed the Labor Party as actually being right of centre. And some of Labor's more recent key policies, such as on climate change, uh, have actually just been rebadged Liberal policies. So does that mean the Labor Party are no longer a left-wing party? Oh, Sean, I think it's a long time since the Labor Party's been a left-wing party, though I'm not sure that left and right really means much these days. Though for Labor, it's a way to, you know, organise their factions and cohorts and numbers on certain things. But I think, you know, probably terms like progressive and conservative are are more useful for us in this day and age. Anthony Albanese, yes, he was a leader of the the left faction and, as, you know, PK has already 
already mentioned he was a, a young lefty for a long time, but he's very firmly knows what you need to be to win elections and stay in power in this country, stay in government in this country, and that is to represent the centre. And that's very firmly what he's doing. And you can see it. You can see him deserting positions that he's held in the past and held fiercely and passionately in the past, but moving more towards the centre on those positions to represent where he thinks and knows. And I think it's a truism in this country that elections are won in the centre. So I, I think, mm. you know, Labor's not interested in calling itself a left-wing party anymore. Would you agree, PK? Yeah, I think they still describe themselves as a progressive party, but I do think that, you know, the centre-left, whatever that means, anymore. And I suppose you're always defined, if I can make a broader point, by your opponents in some ways. And so, yes, to the to the left of Labor is the Greens and, yeah. you know, they're a significant force now. And they are left-wing and they are a lot more left-wing than Labor. And then to the right of Labor is uh, the coalition and, of course, they have their own wings. There are progressive liberals and there are very conservative liberals and uh, they are much more right-wing, I would say, than Labor. So they're at the centre of those two forces and so that does position them in the centre. Labor has long been criticised for not being left-wing enough, though, by the left. They were certainly criticised for that under Keating when he was Prime Minister. Um, So I don't think any of this is new. and, uh, you know, they they did try and neutralise some of the issues which were popular, even though they were right-leaning to get elected. And, and I think that's because they're aware of the arithmetic in this country um, and how some people feel on certain issues. So I reckon what you see is what you get on the packet a bit. It does indeed. So, Sean, thanks for your question. Thanks, all of you, for sending your questions in. We love getting them. We particularly like the ones like we got there from Sean of voice notes, which you can email to the party room at abc.net.au. We pop that email into the show notes so you can send us your voice question as soon as you finish listening to this one. Mm, that's right. And remember to follow the party room on the ABC Lift app so you can never miss an episode. So that's it from the party room this week. We will, of course, be back next week. But just a heads up. We'll have some extra podcast episodes in your party room feed starting next week, which is exciting. It is exciting, PK. I'm co-hosting a new podcast called The Voice Referendum Explained alongside our ABC colleague Carly Williams because we all have to vote in this referendum when the day comes. So Carly and I want to make it easy for everyone to understand what the voice to parliament, what the constitutional change is all about, you know, where it came from, what it's designed to achieve and uh, some of the arguments for and against because it's easy to get overwhelmed and put off by all the political arguments and political noise. But a referendum is important and the stakes are high, I think, particularly in this one and particularly for Indigenous Australians. So keep an eye out next Wednesday for episode one of The Voice Referendum Explained. All right. Well, I will be listening, especially given it's in the feed. It'll be easy. It'll just appear on my phone. I cannot wait. See you next week, friends. See you, PK. Listener.